Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler. On our show today, we will discuss the European money for startups, that is, the new way in which the European Innovation Council and the European Investment Bank are working with startups now. For a long time, this work was limited uh, by the EIB being a limited partner of most of European VCs, while the EIC, uh, the Council, would normally give out grant money, mostly meant for uh, deep tech startups. But now, with the launch of the EIC fund, startups can actually get some European taxpayer money as equity funding. The project has been live for about a year now, and it's not been smooth sailing, not entirely at least. So later in the show we will hear from Stefan Owaki, the chair of the investment committee of the EIC fund, so stay tuned for that. But first, let's get to the news, starting with a few funding announcements, as we usually do. Israel-born Rapid, that's Rapid with a Y, has landed 300 million US dollars at a valuation of 2.5 billion US dollars. The company is a provider of fintech as a service, as it puts it, that is an API-based platform that allows third parties to build solutions for payments, banking services, and also get fraud protection, for example, and much more. The success of Rapid has been certainly catalyzed by the pandemic, which has caused so many companies to move their activities online, including everything related to payments and financial services. So currently, Rapid serves about 5,000 businesses. It had recently bought a card acquirer called Corta, and it is also now looking for more acquisitions across all continents except Antarctica. Another even bigger European funding round has been raised by another payment business, Checkout.com, based in the UK. Checkout.com provides payment solutions for the e-commerce industry, competing here with other European players like Adyen or, to some extent, Klarna and iZettle. Checkout.com has secured 450 million US dollars, bringing its value to 15 billion US dollars, so effectively the company has tripled its valuation since last year. But that's not all the fintech money that we have seen coming this week. London-based Curve, which aggregates credit cards and bank accounts into one app and something that it calls a smart card, has raised 95 million US dollars. The money will supposedly be used to fuel Curve's launch in the US, that should be happening soon. Curve was also in the news last week, which is even more interesting, uh, when reporters noticed that the company blew the deadline to file its accounts for the year 2019 with the company's house in London. Curve said now that the delay was caused by the team being focused on the funding deal in question, and this week it did actually publish the accounts after all, uh, which show a pretty big loss of £26 million compared to just £6 million of loss uh, the year before. Okay, let's move on to other industries now, finally. Uh, French startup EasyWork, creators of a platform that improves temporary employment, has secured 43 million US dollars from Cathay Innovation and BPI France. The Paris-based company says that it wanted to reinvent the employment agency, starting from scratch, from onboarding, which takes two minutes on a smartphone app with the platform, to personnel management and recruitment. 
Temporary employees have access to benefits they wouldn't otherwise, as uh, Annie Musgrove, my colleague, reports for TechU. Uh, these benefits include instant deposits, a 10% annual paid time savings account, personalized professional training and e-learning, and medical teleconsultation. EasyWork saw the number of its users on assignment quadruple between April and December 2020, and in total, the platform has been used by more than 800,000 candidates and 2,000 client companies in France and Italy. Speaking of Italy, Italian grocery delivery company Cortilia has just closed a Series C round of 34 million euros, which is supposed to fuel its expansion as a sustainable B Corp. Cortilia claims to be Italy's first online agricultural marketplace, and it currently lists 2,500 food products in its catalog. The service actually focuses on delivering groceries to people's homes, rather than working with restaurants and other horeca companies. It is currently active in the regions of Lombardy, Emilia-Romagna, and Piemont, and those are northern regions of Italy, just think about Milan, Bologna, and Turin. Another big round of this week was secured by Sender, the Berlin-based digital freight forwarder. The company landed 160 million US dollars at a valuation north of 1 billion US dollars. The company states its mission as to accelerate digitalization of European trucking, and you can also read more about it in a recent profile that we ran on TechEU. Sender was also in the news last September after it acquired the European freight business of Uber in an all-stock deal. Another mildly interesting detail about the round is that the lead investor in this round was not actually disclosed, but TechCrunch reports that it could be Hido Sophia, a growth VC firm based in London. Now, let's talk about IPOs uh, that we are about to see materialize really soon, or so at least uh, the companies tell us. German-used car platform Auto One has announced that it plans to list on Frankfurt Stock Exchange before end of March. Nasdaq reports that sources close to the deal said that the Berlin-based companies could be valued above 5 billion euros as a result of the flotation. The company added that it hopes to raise 1 billion euros from new shares. Three quarters of this new capital of this 1 billion euros will go to expanding the business, specifically its retail arm Auto Hero, which currently operates in nine countries, and the rest of the money will pay off a convertible loan. Next up, Deliveroo, which will soon go public in London. On Wednesday, Sky News reported that Deliveroo had hired four investment banks for its IPO that's planned for April. Namely, it had appointed Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Citi, Jefferies, and Numis. The report also cited unnamed market sources as expecting the flow to value Deliveroo at a quote well over £5 billion. But next day, Business Insider ran another report where another set of industry sources, also unnamed, put the expected valuation at £10 billion. Both publications agree that the IPO is expected to take place in April, though, uh, so we are probably going to see for ourselves what's going to happen pretty soon. And there is one more planned IPO in London which I wanted to mention, uh, this time by Moonpig, an online greeting card retailer which I admittedly never heard about. Apparently it's active in the UK as Moonpig, and also it's active in the Netherlands where I live under another brand name that's Greets with a Z, but I have never heard of this one mentioned either. According to a report by Bloomberg, the IPO is expected to value Moonpig at over £1 billion. The company says that in 2019 it held a 60% share of the UK market of online greeting cards and a 65% share in the Netherlands. 
Now, let's get to a couple of VC news stories. Uh, Bulgaria-based early-stage VC firm Launch Hub Ventures has announced a first close of its new fund at 44 million euros, and the target size of the fund is 70 million euros. Launch Hub Ventures was set up in 2012, as Robin Wouter's report for TechEU, and its, uh, its idea was to primarily back seed and Series A stage startups in sectors like B2B SaaS, FinTech, PropTech, Big Data, AI, Blockchain, Marketplaces, and Digital Health Ventures. Back in December 2016, it raised 18 million euro fund, uh, and its fresh fund now of uh, 70 million target, 44 million closed, is backed by the European Investment Fund and a number of tech corporations as well as successful Bulgarian founders. Launch Hub says that it will likely have a final close by the end of the second quarter of this year. It also intends to back 25 startups uh, from this fund over the next four years. There is also a new VC on the block, though it's not actually a new face in the industry. Berlin-based Delivery Hero is launching a 50 million euro VC fund called DX Ventures. The fund will invest in, I quote, disruptive fund-led companies across a range of industries including on-demand services, food technology, sustainable innovation, artificial intelligence, fintech, and logistics. The move actually looks like a way to formalize uh, something that's already been happening for a while, uh, because Delivery Hero has been investing in startups uh, since quite uh, uh, some time ago, including, for example, four deals of undisclosed size that were announced last summer. Two of them were in Europe, I think, and two of them were in the US. So to wrap up this section, let us talk about space quickly. The European Investment Fund has just announced that it is investing 300 million euros in two European space VCs, namely Orbital Ventures and Primo Space. So if you are a space tech startup, you know where to look for your next round now. In other news, uh, Latvia may have just become the most startup-friendly country in Europe following a legislative change to the country's stock option policy, or at least that's what Index Ventures said. According to the VC firm, the new reforms in Latvia and earlier last year also in Lithuania have turned the Baltics into a region with the world's most favorable stock option policies, making it easier for startups to attract and retain the talent they need to succeed. So the current version of the ranking of the most startup-friendly countries lists Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania in the first three positions, and then they are followed by Israel, Canada, France, the UK, Portugal, the US, and Poland. So this is it for the news part of the show, and we are fully ready to move on to the interview part. But before we do, I think I need to set the stage a little bit so that you understand the context of what we are going to hear. Last week on this show, I talked about the first funding coming to startups selected for the so-called blended financing by the European Innovation Council Fund. 42 startups have received the money already, while another 100-something are still in the process of negotiation and due diligence. Also last week, Politico.eu ran a story where nine anonymous CEOs and founders of those startups that still haven't got their money aired their grievances about the EIC fund processes. The headline quote is that it's going to kill your business, while in the piece itself the situation is characterized as a complete mess. The main issue appears to be the provision uh, that the equity financing from the EIC fund normally does not actually come by itself, but rather as part of a funding round led 
led by a traditional VC. The startups in question say that they were somehow led to believe that the EIC itself is going to find those private investors for them, while the EIC maintains that this ultimately is a task of the startup, although the fund does provide certain matchmaking opportunities. It is also evident that it took more than a year from the moment the first companies were chosen for blended financing and uh, until the actual first wire transfers happened. Obviously, it's not great for startups that usually don't have a runway that long, especially in the pandemic reality. So I really wanted to hear the position of the EIC fund and uh, preferably something that goes beyond the normal canned responses you can get uh, from the press department over there. I ended up having a call with uh, Stefan Owaki, the head of unit for financial instruments in DG Research and Innovation at the European Commission and the chair of the investment committee of the EIC fund. So let's start from the beginning. You are, among other things, you are the chair of the investment committee at the EIC fund. What does it actually mean in practice? What does the chair do? Well, I basically chair meetings and I uh, make sure that uh, we arrive at uh, successful conclusions of our discussions in order to move the process along and bring the recommendations to the attention of the EIC fund board, which is the decision-making body of the EIC fund. But of course, everything that the fund board does or uh, decides on has been prepared by the investment committee. Right. And how often do you meet? Every week. Right. And the committee itself, so it's, uh, uh, what is it, uh, eight people, seven, eight people? Yeah, so it's right. me plus seven people that have all been uh, drawn from, broadly speaking, the world of investment in Europe. And they are all bringing, I would say, different uh, geographical or sectoral expertise that, of course, is very useful for us, given the fact that we are running uh, a bottom-up uh, EIC accelerator with companies coming from not only the 27 member states, but also about 16 associated countries to the program mm -hmm. of Horizon Europe uh, and uh, to the program Horizon 2020 and uh, in the future Horizon Europe, but also, of course, from many sectors. And uh, as you know, this is the beauty of what we're trying to run here as a, as a bottom-up exercise, which is that we leave it to the innovators to bring technological solutions that would be sometimes at uh, the intersection of different disciplines or sectors. Right. So what is the function of the investment committee? Uh, is, it, uh, is it making the actual investment decisions initially? It recommends those investment decisions to the board, and the board is the decision-making body. Okay, uh, may I ask you to walk me through uh, this actual uh, grant and equity funding procedure for a startup that has been selected for blended funding, funding by the fund? So what does the startup see? Well, I mean, first of all, applicants uh, have to be uh, SMEs, startups, early stage companies from any sector in the EU or in an Horizon 2020 associated countries. Companies can decide to apply for a grant support that's uh, up to 2.5 million euros, but they can also apply for blended finance, which will then blend a maximum of 2.5 million grants with a possibility, therefore, to have this equity element of up to 15 million euros. And uh, then once they have applied and after we have run an eligibility check to make sure that they are indeed eligible, uh, they are evaluated in two steps. Uh, the first step is 
uh, a remote evaluation carried out by independent expert evaluators that will recruit across all of Europe uh, on the basis of their CVs. Of course, they apply for being considered to be experts in this process. And then most interestingly, we have what we call the face-to-face -face interview, which comes as a second step. So once you qualify in the first step, you're among the best companies. You invited to the face-to-face -face interview, which of course now this year because, or last year because of COVID-19, we have run remotely. And during that process, uh, you uh, will uh, be uh, basically running a pitch for your company, for your application with six expert evaluators that would be sitting in front of you and asking you uh, uh, a lot of questions for about uh, 45 minutes. That process, uh, therefore, is concluded by a deliberation by the jury, and uh, that deliberation will either conclude that you are uh, selected, it's a go, or you're not selected, which is a no-go. So if you are in that category of companies being selected, then the process moves on in two parallel tracks. One of them is the grant preparation, in which uh, the executive agency prepares the grant on the basis of the applications that has been received. So it's a rather mm -hmm. smooth uh, process. And then, of course, on the side of the equity, the process becomes a bit more complicated because then we run a due diligence, uh, due diligence with a full compliance check on a number of issues that are important from EU legislation, such as uh, sanctions regime, uh, tax avoidance schemes, uh, presence or not in non-compliance jurisdiction, and so on. All these things, uh, of course, have to be checked uh, by us. But at the same time, uh, a team at the European Investment Bank that works for the EIC fund then runs the due diligence with the company and uh, tries to determine what would be the best way to translate that uh, equity uh, promise or equity selection of, uh, for that company. It may very well be that during the due diligence process, a number of elements come to light that uh, put into question uh, the equity participation, sometimes even also the grants. For example, if we realize that there has been uh, false uh, representation or uh, fraud or you know things that uh, are not entirely okay for us to support the company. Uh, but it also could be that uh, we realize that either the company is uh, too early in the process or that the company does not really offer in terms of its uh, cap table the type of structure that will allow uh, uh, the EIC fund to smoothly take the equity uh, participation. So therefore, in that case, uh, we may have a situation in which uh, the conditions of entry uh, into the capital of the company will be then questioned. And this is, of course, something that the investment committee will review. Uh, nevertheless, if the, uh, the investment committee considers that on the basis of the due diligence and on the basis of the work done by the uh, colleagues of the European Investment Bank, we can forward a recommendation for investing to the board, we usually do it uh, in, by trenching these commitments in order to uh, provide, I would say, the necessary runway for the company to function. Mind you, most of these companies, I mean, all these companies have also a grant component, so therefore they are being helped already by the grant component, the grant injunction. But of course, then the equity comes in, usually in uh, two or three trenches, depending on the situation of the company. 
And typically, the first range is usually a convertible note that we take, given that uh, often the time at which we make that investment recommendation is not necessarily is synchronized with uh, the moment the company could potentially have around concluding. And therefore, that will allow uh, the company uh, not to be uh, either put in a waiting room or uh, where we would be in a situation we will not be able to join around. So it allows us to uh, enter the company with a convertible note and wait for the next round to then exercise uh, our entry as equity into the company. That's usually what happens there. Of course, then there is a variety of scenarios depending on the company. Uh, this scenario can be, for example, that we arrive at a moment when there is a round. This is what happened with the first company that we have concluded the investment agreement, which is CoreWave, on which we have communicated quite heavily also uh, with CoreWave itself at the beginning of January. Uh, of course, we arrived at a moment when the company was negotiating uh, a Series C round, and of course, we joined that round, and therefore, that uh, made it, I would say, uh, easier in that context. But often, uh, the companies are not necessarily in the moment at the moment when we consider entering, at the moment when a round is being concluded. So, and just to reiterate, how important is it for the EIC fund that there is this private venture capital element? Well, I mean, we are not there to crowd out the private sector. We are there to crowd in the private sector. It's the DNA of the EIC, the crowding in principle. So, uh, you know, I mean, we would be subjected to a lot of criticism if the actions of the European Commission, which is a public body operating uh, uh, in all the member states and also in a number of associated countries, was going to uh, replace in investing in, uh, I would say, very promising startups the private sector. So we have to be quite careful that uh, when the companies apply and when we they have been selected for support because of their excellence uh, of the product that they want to develop, the technology that they want to introduce in the market, that we have to be very careful that we do that uh, without pushing aside the possibilities offered by uh, commercial VCs, business angels, and, and other investors. So we have to do that uh, as much as we can by crowding in uh, the private sector. And this is, of course, something that is very important for the EIC fund in order to first is, uh, facilitate also the later scale-up of these companies, because that clearly will have to be carried out if the idea is promising by the private sector. So we are just acting as a bridge uh, financier. We are providing a, a, a step going forward into the private market, but we are not there to replace the private market. And it's very important to see our role here as uh, basically facilitating the next steps for the company. In this case, how big is normally that convertible note uh, that you were talking about before? Like, how was the percentage? Like, how, how big is a share? How big a share of the funding does it normally represent? It's usually around 50% of the funding that the company managed to obtain during the evaluation round. Of course, they can be less or a bit more than that, depending, again, on the circumstances of the company. But usually it's around 50%. There are certain cases in which we don't take, like I said, a convertible note from the outset because we come at the moment when there is a round. Uh, sometimes it is much less than that, mm -hmm. also because uh, sometimes we are in a situation in which there is a pending round coming at the horizon of one or two years and, and the company does not need so much cash in order to be able to function. So we also have to adjust the level of the money that is being injected uh, in the first tranche to 
uh, I would say, the cash burn expectations on the part of the company. So this is, of course, part of the discussion taking place during the due diligence that allow us to, I would say, to size uh, correctly what should be uh, this first range that we inject in the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any limitations as to how long it may take between this, uh, let's say, the, the start of the process and uh, the last uh, trench that the company receives during the during a funding round, for example? Well, we have uh, normally we target a due diligence uh, time frame of about six months. We have encountered, of course, at the beginning uh-huh. of the process because of COVID-19, much longer time of the order of uh, nine to 12 months because of uh, the delays that uh, we have experienced on uh, in our organization. But uh, now we're catching up strongly. We are meeting, like I said, every week at the level of the investment committee. The board is also meeting very, very intensively. Uh-huh. Uh, and therefore, we're catching up. Once the period of the due diligence is over, uh, let's say there is after the, in order to process the decision, the recommendation from the investment committee to the board, and then to implement it will take about one to two months. And uh, and then once the company has signed the investment agreement, we uh, will move very quickly to release the funds because that uh, has been done in the case of CoreWave in a matter of a week after the signature of the investment agreement, for example. And, uh, and then, of course, once uh, in the case of the companies uh, in which we have provided the first trench in the form of a convertible, what usually happens is that we give around 12 months to 24 months for going to the second tranche, which normally should be an equity round. But still, what happens if the normal like equity round doesn't come? Would you still release those funds? Would you still invest uh, in the company? Well, then we will have to go back to the board. So the committee will reassess the situation of the company, try to evaluate for which reasons the company did not manage to move to the second tranche in the form of an equity round. These uh, reasons could be valid. These reasons could be entirely legitimate. And then, of course, on the basis of this information, we will uh, then go back to the board to ask another mandate, which could be, okay, uh, the reasons were not very good. We think that uh, for us, uh, it could be a problem for the EIC fund to continue pouring public money into that company. So we may stop at that moment. But it could very well be that the company needs a bit more time in order to conclude the round. It could very well be that uh, the situation in terms of uh, the equity round uh, is a bit more complex and require, I would say, uh, a more uh, flexible approach when it comes to how we will trench it. So we could, for example, envisage uh, a number of scenarios here in order to continue to support the company if we believe that the reason for which the company has not been able to meet these uh, these conditions and these milestones are valid and therefore allow for, I would say, uh, a reassessment of its situation in, uh, in a way that could lead to uh, a change in the approach. Right. And just a couple of uh, technical questions. Uh, do you have any requirements uh, for the VCs with whom you co-invest? Do they have to be European VCs necessarily or does it not, does it not matter for you? 
Well, in practice, what has happened is a lot of the companies in which we are entering have already existing investors. Some of them are not European, uh, and that has not posed a major problem for us to propose to the company a convertible or an equity round. Uh, we are also in the process of setting up a matchmaking platform that will onboard many interested uh, VCs. Many of them that have contacted us are not necessarily European. But of course, uh, where you're present on the European market and you're active on the European market, it's of course a greater advantage because uh, we uh, want, of course, to provide uh, for investors coming and co-investing with us, those that know the market here in Europe for, for European companies. And also, of course, are also interested in letting these European companies grow and uh, develop their uh, business case here in Europe, because that, of course, is a major requirement from our point of view. If, uh, of course, uh, a VC from uh, the US or China would want to invest at the condition of bringing the company uh, somewhere else, we would, of course, not be okay with that. And speaking of uh, you being okay or not okay with something, so after you invest in a startup, how active uh, would the fund be involved in that startup's work uh, and operations? And would you, uh, and would you, for example, get a board seat in those startups that you invest in? Yeah, in most of the situations that we have come across so far, we will uh, ask for board seats. That's part of the negotiation mandate that is given to the European Investment Bank when it negotiates the investment agreement with the companies uh, in which we have a, a positive uh, board decision. We are going to uh, look into uh, finding uh, the right individuals to occupy these board seats uh, on behalf of the EIC fund because, of course, we want to find those people that would be more uh, able to help the development of the company in the interest of the companies in which we have put uh, our money. Uh, and of course, uh, the point here is not to uh, get uh, our hands on the wheel of the company. The idea here is not to uh, impact uh, the day-to-day -day management of the company. The idea here is to provide uh, the necessary support in order to help the company on a number of uh, things that uh, naturally will uh, are difficult for this type of startups. For example, uh, finding the right contacts, the right uh, markets, where to find the right expertise or entrepreneurship uh, background, individuals, and so on, in order to get that expertise uh, uh, at hand. And this is where, of course, where we believe as the IC fund, we can play quite uh, a significant role in mobilizing this type of support to help the company in its early stages of the scale-up process. Right. That's a whole lot of board seats, though. It's uh, We're talking 160 companies uh, uh, right now. So where are you going to find all those people to fill those seats and who are they going to be and how are they going to be affiliated with, uh, with the fund? That's that I agree. This is a major challenge that we had ahead of us, and uh, this is something that, of course, because of the of the newness of the process, we have not really grappled with yet. But uh, this is, of course, very challenging to find the right people. But we we believe that uh, there is enough uh, of these right people across uh, Europe uh, today 
to be able to interest them in participating in this adventure. As you know, we have been very successful, for example, in uh, getting the right experts and also jury members for the face-to-face interviews to come along with us. We have generated a lot of interest. This is an adventure that uh, generating a lot of uh, enthusiasm, a lot of uh, optimism on the future of Europe in, uh, in especially, for example, making a difference on deep tech. So we, we believe we'll find the right individuals, even if I agree with you, this is very challenging to find uh, so many uh, very good experts for so many different sectors and geographies. But are these people going to come uh, from the actual like European Commission bureaucracy, let's say, or are they going to be actual people from the industry? And if it's going to be the latter, then how are they affiliated uh, with you in this case? Are they employed by you? Well, no, I mean, uh, okay, there are two different situations. I mean, either we will have just an observer seat. In that case, we will probably uh, rely on our colleagues of the European Investment Bank to uh, provide this observer observer seat. Mm -hmm. And then in that case, it's not, uh, like I said, the commission that will uh, will come, but more the EIB to monitor, of course, the development of the company and report back on how our investments are performing. I mean, in the case where, I mean, again, a number, a subset of those cases, this is not going to be the 160 you're mentioning, but probably a, a more limited pool of these companies in which we decide to actually exercise the right to a full board seat. Of course, we will have to rely on people from the outside, from people from industry. We will not put either commission officials or EIB officials in such a position which would not be appropriate and therefore we will not have I would say the we will not have in any case in-house the level of expertise that would be needed to effectively help those companies uh, develop right I understand and a uh, uh, last technical ish question would be about the size of uh, uh, like how much equity you're actually asking for and uh, it states uh, that it's going to be between 10 and 25% in uh, the companies that you invest in don't you think it may be a bit too much because like it does sound like a lot honestly and uh, aren't you afraid that it could actually influence uh, the way that uh, in the later at later stages uh, uh, the VCs uh, coming uh, in would not uh, like seeing this sort of uh, uh, cap table situation. Yeah, no, we tend to stay as as close as possible to the ten percent range because we want to avoid this precisely what you're saying, which is to uh, create complications for further rounds vis-a-vis commercial VCs. But of course, we don't exclude that in certain cases we will have to go a, a bit beyond ten percent. That's why we put that mm-hmm. range between twenty and twenty-five percent. But what you said is very important because again, this is very much the DNA of the IC fund. We are there in order to facilitate the scale up with private money of the companies and therefore we are extremely mindful of not doing anything in particular on the on the cap table that could potentially uh, penalize the companies or complicate the scale of process and complicate its growth in view of, uh, of its attractiveness vis-a-vis uh, private uh, investors in particular commercial vcs Right, right. Okay, uh, we have a little bit more time, so let us address another question. So let's address the complaints uh, that have been just recently aired uh, in a piece that ran on uh, politico.eu. Uh, so there were these complaints from nine, if I'm not mistaken, uh, an, an anonymous uh, founders and uh, CEOs of startups that apparently were in the very first batch of uh, EIC uh, fund uh, blended finance, as far as I understand. So the ones that were 
determined back in December 2019. And in the piece, they were complaining about a lot of things, particularly about the bureaucratic mess and that it takes a lot of time and that somehow they were led to believe that uh, the EIC will do a lot of work in finding actual private investors for them. So first of all, have you have you read the piece and uh, what's your general take? How do you think, how justified are these uh, complaints? Well, uh, I mean, frankly, we think that the, the article is very unbalanced. First of all, it relies on uh, the, the feedback that maybe has been provided by nine, uh, albeit anonymous, uh, founders on, on what uh, has happened and their experience has been. Uh, overall, the contact that we have with those companies, even those from the first batch, which uh, we regretted, have had to wait quite a long time. And we recognize that there were significant delays in the process in the year 2020, especially for the companies in this first batch. Um, the contact we have with the companies is very positive. I mean, the companies, even those that uh, at the beginning of the process, when we are approaching them with uh, those packages that we are proposing, uh, may ask a lot of questions and ask to negotiate some of the terms. But usually we don't really have a problem with these companies in finding the right balance uh, between the board uh, decision uh, and actually what uh, they would like to see at the end and what they are ready to sign at the end. So at the end of the day, um, the, the article, we believe, has been extremely one-sided and, and presented a very, very bleak uh, reality when actually uh, what we see from the companies, in particular those of this first batch of December 2019, is uh, that things have been going relatively smoothly, even if certain companies came with a number of expectations, which at the end of the day were not verified. And the reasons for this is that uh, many of these companies were used to a grand process, which was very mechanical, very automatic, very predictable, where they apply, let's say, for 2 million or 2.5 million, and they get the 2 million or 2.5 million if they are selected. And we move very, very quickly to the grant agreement phase on which we just uh, basically copy-paste their application form into the grant agreement. And uh, and this process has been running extremely smoothly with a lot of years spent in uh, perfecting it. And of course, that level of expectations it created on the, on the part of the applicants cannot be matched by the fund, which of course had to be created from, from scratch in the year 2020, like I said, in conditions that were far from ideal with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and therefore, we had to basically set up those processes and this has led to uh, a, a number of uh, discoveries that we made along the way, which is um, perfectly normal since it was a pilot and we ran it under uh, Horizon 2020 as a pilot precisely because we wanted to learn all these lessons on how we can run, uh, I would say, a full-scale fund uh, under Horizon Europe. And this is, this is what we have done. At the end of the day, I don't think that we have seen uh, I would say companies complaining heavily directly to us or refusing to sign or walking away and telling us that they are not interested in what we are offering. Of course, there is an element of negotiation. And during those elements of negotiation, uh, of course, companies uh, have the tendency to put uh, their position quite forcefully. This is normal in this type of negotiation between a fund uh, and, uh, and a company that is, uh, of course, fighting its corner. I have to say that, uh, of course, often uh, the those that were making, I would say, the, the, the strongest uh, position vis-à-vis -vis, uh, our uh, negotiating position were not necessarily the founders, but they were more the existing investors in the companies because, of course, they were looking 
at uh, better terms for themselves, better than for uh, the companies themselves. And I think that once uh, we realize a bit these dynamics, I think then we managed to uh, arrive at an agreement that was satisfactory for all parties. Right, right. No, this is this is interesting. This is an interesting point about the investors. And uh, I wanted to address particularly one thing uh, that the story says that, and I quote from the story right now, the fund has now augmented its process retroactively to heavily prioritize equity investments in firms rather than the grant aspect. Is this actually something that has taken place? Did you actually look back and sort of decide that uh, the equity board has a sort of priority and it is much more important and you really want to push for that? Not at all. I mean, on the contrary, first of all, at the level of application, companies remain entirely free in the context of the pilot to apply either for grant only or to apply for grant and equity. There is absolutely no compulsion to do so. What we have done, though, during the evaluation in a certain number of companies that have uh, proposed to have a number of costs of their business plan to be implemented that were clearly costs that were on the market already, have been requalified at costs that we could not finance with a grant. This is because of uh, stated regulation that we have also, uh, to a certain extent, to align ourselves on in order not to create a discrepancy between what is allowed at national level and what we can do at European level. And of course, in those cases, we have offered to the company an equity component for those costs that were exceeding what we could provide as support under grant. But then once the company arrived in due diligence, we have looked at uh, this equity component, I would say rather uh, critically, in order to, again, assess the real situation of the company, whether the company was in a situation where it could uh, indeed uh, was in a good situation to absorb this equity uh, stake. And, uh, and of course, this is what uh, the fund does in order, again, looking at the interest of the company. Some of them may be uh, evaluated or assessed during the due diligence as being too early in the process. And then uh, the conclusion may be that uh, maybe the company has to wait a little longer before we can operationalize that equity stake. So that is, of course, very, uh, very possible. But in any case, uh, the, this process has not been made in order to force equity on those companies. Uh, it's been made just to uh, make sure that uh, we maintain the equal treatment between companies and not offer to cover with grants activities that fundamentally other companies, whether they are uh, our beneficiaries or they are not, uh, are uh, financing, uh, I would say, with uh, private money, private money their own or money coming from uh, VCs, uh, commercial VCs on the market. And it's, uh, of course, a very important element that on which we cannot really compromise. Right, right, I understand. And another point that was mentioned uh, in the, those complaints, which I can actually easily imagine happening, uh, was that due to this time lag, uh, at the end of the day, the deal on the table for a startup, uh, the valuation in the deal was basically a year old. So, like, and for for a startup in that particular at that particular stage, it can it, it can be like I don't know, yeah, the the earth and the and the and the sky. It's like the, the difference could be could be really huge. So, how how do you how do you approach this kind of issue? Uh, and uh, if the startup does not want to uh, sign the deal with this old valuation, and if they say okay, we need to renege the valuation, would it actually mean that they have to wait another half a year for the another sort of uh, iteration of due diligence? I mean, first of all, yeah, the time lag has been an issue for a number of companies and 
the way they have addressed these issues has been uh, different. I mean, some of them, what they what they have done is that they had, of course, went ahead and uh, conclude around uh, in the absence of the EIC money because uh, it was taking too long. And what we have done then when we have arrived is that we have usually aligned on the on the on the round that has taken place while they were waiting for us to conclude our due diligence. So therefore, we have uh, done it in a way in order not to have any detriment to the company because of, of course, the time lag that uh, to a large extent was our responsibility at the end of the day. Uh, there, there has been, of course, other cases in which the companies has, uh, on on purpose, waited uh, for the IC fund to come, and then in that case, we have looked very, very carefully at what was the situation in terms of valuation, in order, of course, not to do detriment to the company and not to penalize the company in view of the uh, uh, forthcoming round that uh, was in the pipeline, and we have uh, tried to unblock those rounds as much as we could and as fast as we could. But again, if again the time that will be additional to uh, conclude that round will be indeed too big that it would make the situation of the company uh, to wait again too long before our money will uh, would be coming. Uh, we have, of course, resorted to uh, the use of the convertible note in order to provide the necessary runway for the company and not to penalize the company further, especially in terms of, uh, of the time that has been already spent waiting for the conclusion of the investment of the, of the EIC fund. Right, right. I understand. So uh, if, you were, if you were to summarize, so what were the lessons, let's say, uh, that you have learned within this first year and how are you going to sort of fix the things that did not go uh, so well over this, over this year? Well, obviously, uh, we are expected to deliver things, uh, to deliver those investments in a much faster way than we have done during the first year. And, and we have uh, taken this uh, very much to heart by uh, uh, streamlining our processes, uh, additionally hiring people in order to make sure that we will have uh, the necessary manpower in place in order to deliver those uh, due diligence and then deals much quicker than this has been the case. And we are on a good way now to catch up with the backlog that we have accumulated and to be ready uh, by the time Horizon Europe starts uh, sometime, uh, probably the first uh, cutoff will be in middle of the year uh, to be able to then be uh, in a way uh, to have to shorten considerably the time between the moment the grant agreement is being concluded and the moment we can offer an equity package to uh, the companies. So that's, I would say, the most important thing. We need to be able to deliver quickly for our companies. The second thing is that we have also learned very much from uh, the interaction with commercial VCs, business angels, other investors. Uh, we have discovered to our surprise that many of these companies were already in contact with them, not only with uh, existing investors in their capital, but also uh, exist, uh, investors interested in coming in the next round. And uh, we've been now much more, uh, I would say, forthcoming in anticipating this discussion with the companies in order to be able to plug ourselves in in those discussions in order to facilitate the conclusion of those uh, of those rounds and uh, this is for example what we have done in the latest uh, the, the latest cutoff that we have evaluated which was in december of last year where we have basically fast tracked this process from this point of view in order to make sure that we can actually be a partner also for these rounds that are under preparation and not uh, have the companies wait for the due diligence to be completed several months down the road before we can take a position on what was uh, happening. So I think this is also very important for us to be more in sync with uh, the ecosystem of uh, VCs in Europe uh, in, in that way. 
What we have learned also is, of course, that uh, many companies may be uh, too early in the process to be uh, to for us to be effectively able to implement these equity packages, and therefore we need to offer them. Uh, other type of solutions, in other words, to maybe make them uh, wait or offer them uh, milestones with in, uh, with which we can provide a package of support measures, what we call our business acceleration services, which are uh, the possibility to rely on coaches and so on, that of course are sometimes critical in order to improve the prospects of the companies. So there is a, a range of lessons that we have learned uh, there that we are of course starting to implement already now. We didn't wait for Horizon Europe to start to do so, uh, but that will have their full effect of course when we will evaluate the first uh, cutoff and the Horizon Europe sometime uh, in the second half of the year. Right, right, I understand. But uh, do you do you actually think it could have happened that at some point, uh, your colleagues somehow could have overpromised, and uh, these startups were really, as they say, led to believe uh, that uh, the EAC was going to do much more than it was ac- than it actually ended up doing. Well, we, we've we've been very very careful in the language we used in communicating officially with these companies. For example, the the so-called grant. Uh, preparation letter which uh, kickstarts the process after the company is being selected clearly says that there will be a due diligence and that due diligence can revise downward the amount of money that will be offered under equity and therefore the company should be mindful of the consequences of this uh, due diligence process that will be carried out by the European Investment Bank. So we we, we took uh, great care of uh, managing expectations of these companies but I, I'm ready to admit that again the experience of the process that was run before only on grants uh, has maybe led many of them to believe that it would be a very automatic mechanism, very predictable, very, um, uh, I would say, uh, without too many questions asked when actually a due diligence and, and here we are trying, of course, to align the practice of the fund uh, on the best in Europe, on the market practice of the best funds in Europe. The due diligence, by definition, is a quite an in-depth analysis of the, fi- of the fundamentals of a company. And, and of course, that process, by definition, can uh, bring a, a, a lot of different elements that can, uh, you know, force us to revise the overall uh, size of the package and the overall conditions on which the company can access that equity package. So, I mean, it's a process. We are now uh, also taking this into account, um, organizing our communication with the companies in a different way in order to announce upfront what is the process going to be about in a much more detailed way than this has been the case. Uh, of, or instead of a couple of sentences, we are communic- communicating uh, in a much more uh, direct way with them. Uh, but of course, uh, this, like I said, is a learning process also from our side and, uh, and we are taking great care in order to communicate with the companies in the appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. I understand. And speaking of due diligence, it kind of sounds a tiny little bit weird to me that like that it's sort of it's obvious for uh, uh, for both yourself and uh, your colleagues that I talked to before that the due diligence process for the equity funding is much deeper and much more serious uh, than uh, the due diligence process for a grant. I mean, the grant is also not a pocket change. It's like it's two, it's two and a half million euros of taxpayers' money. Uh, why? Uh, why is it that different then? 
because the grant process is run on an evaluation on which, like I said, it's done by external experts that we hire on the basis of CVs that we review based on the expertise of the experts that have applied for it. We give the file to the experts and they basically rank the proposal. So if you wish, there is an aspect of uh, a budget allocated per call, which then uh, is up for grabs. Uh, the, the experts rank the proposals on, on uh, excellence impact uh, and uh, and then they uh, an implementation and then basically they uh, give them marks and uh, they average those marks and we have a ranking on the basis of that ranking then we uh, basically take the best ranked companies and then what is happening is that they are invited to a face-to-face -face interview of course uh, the experts that review the package of information the application sent by the companies write notes that are being then submitted to the jury members that see the pitching from the company but what you have to see is that of course uh, the application that's being sent by the company is the company's opinion on itself while at the same time First. what's happening during the jury investigation is only 45 minutes so we have an application that is being sent by the companies being reviewed by the experts and we have a 45 minutes pitching on which we can basically try to cross-reference those elements during that session it's a very very short session during a due diligence of course you have many weeks if not months in which you can ask many iterations of questions on the fundamentals of the companies and you can then push uh, based on the answers that you receive further and therefore in that way you get a much better idea of what uh, the company uh, is about and that by definition is a much more intrusive if you wish uh, uh, process that ever we can run uh, by running a grant process even if of course uh, the grant process is run in a very efficient way as well from a logistical uh, point of view uh, in bringing together all these different experts. But at the end of the day, uh, inevitably, uh, the, the detailed analysis that we can provide is uh, basically on the information provided by the company itself. And it can never be uh, as detailed or as, uh, I would say, uh, uh, intrusive as what, a, as what uh, a due diligence can do. Yep, yeah, that's pretty clear. Thank you. <clears throat> and uh, last question then. I uh, uh, went uh, earlier today into our news archives and I found my own piece of 2018, in which I interviewed uh, uh, Julien Guerrier, who at that time was the director of the Executive Agency for Small and Medium Enterprises, ESME. And uh, <clears throat> that was, I think, for, was the first time uh, when uh, he talked uh, to me anyone actually talked to me about uh, uh, the EIC accelerator pilot and the fund and the whole idea of uh, getting this uh, uh, blended uh, uh, financing uh, for startups. And what he said back then was, I quote uh, this, uh, for public investments, failure is the measure of success. If we were to succeed disproportionately, it would mean that we just displaced private investment, the quote ends. And uh, also what he said is that, yeah, the whole idea of the project is to fund the startups for for which it is really, really hard, if not impossible at that particular stage, to attract funding from private VCs. Is this still the approach uh, that you have? Because uh, to me, sometimes it seems that you are a bit sort of too pushy in trying to actually pick winners here and not necessarily companies for whom it, for whom, uh, it actually would be more of a tiresome process to find private funding. The EAC and part of it, the AC fund doesn't aim at failure, it aims at success. We want <laughs> to produce many successful companies in Europe. In the process of doing that, 
we're selecting those that are in most in need of our support because they have an excellent technology or an excellent product to put on the market. But because of the risk perception on the part of private investors, they don't find uh, the full necessary funding they need from those private investors. And we act as a bridge builder towards those private investors in order to uh, bring them to where they need to be to the next stages of the scale-up process. This is what we do. By definition, because of the fact that we go where the market has difficulties going all the way, by definition, this means that we are able to accept a much higher failure rate potentially. But it has to be clear, we aim at success for the fund, for the AC, and for the companies we're helping. We want to create as many global champions as possible coming out of Europe, coming out of our great research and innovation programs that we have run at EU level and at national level. And this is what DIC is there to do. It's not aiming at failure. It's aiming at success. Right. Okay. Final, final question. <laughs> uh, in the future, let's imagine you've got some successes and as a result of a liquidity event, uh, be it an IPO, be it an acquisition, you've actually got money. What, where, do, where does this money go? It's re-injected into the program and we help more companies like this. Right. This is great. This is a great way to end it. Uh, Stefan, once again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time for this conversation uh, tonight. Uh, thanks a lot and uh, good luck with running the uh, committee. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. And this is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you are subscribed to this show on Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor and rate it and write a review. This helps a lot. If you need more TechEU goodness in your life, follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and or follow myself at A Degler. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. Also, once again, there is always our voicemail. Our voicemail inbox is at tech.eu slash voicemail. Head over there, speak your mind, and get featured on one of our next episodes. tech.eu slash voicemail. We are always happy to hear from you. This was Tech.eu Podcast. I am Andre Degler, and I will talk to you again next week. For now, take care and enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye.